0: Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I am your host, Peggy Hughes, and having travelled... All over the world, with this podcast, over the past couple of weeks, while we've all been locked down at home, from Edinburgh to Creetown to Glasgow and and further afield, we thought we would focus back in on Wigtown this week with two very special Wigtowners who will be no stranger to many of you who have visited the festival: uh, Sean Bithel of the Bookshop and author of several books about the Bookshop and the town, and Ronnie Boyle, who is the storyteller in residence for the festival. First up, we hear from Sean. Sean is the proprietor and bookseller at The Bookshop, which is Scotland's biggest secondhand bookshop. But he's also the author of two books so far, Diary of a Bookseller and Confessions of a Bookseller, which came out in 2019. How is Wigtown in lockdown, Sean? Paint us the picture. I think some people listening will have been and enjoyed the festival and then there'll be others who have never had the pleasure of visiting Wigtown, I would imagine.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's... Interesting. I mean, 10 always looks quiet, even during the festival. So in some senses, it doesn't look very different. It's just that you only see familiar faces, which is quite an unusual experience, because normally at this time of year, the town is full of tourists, and there are none. I suppose the sort of upshot of that is, and I think I may have written about this, is that people who you normally just recognise, but would never have had a conversation with through no fault of yours or of theirs when you're stuck behind them for half an hour or 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever in the queue for the co-op or the post office which are the only two things that seem to be open you start talking to people and it's been in that regard I think it's kind of cemented the community in a way that has been a really positive thing and thank goodness we've had three months of the most glorious weather and there's lots of green space in and around Wigtown so I don't think anybody feels too trapped we've been really lucky.
0: It does strike me as a a remarkably lovely place to have to endure such a weird time for the universe It
1: it is funny when you do bump into people and start chatting to them about things, one thing that everybody always says is, god I'm glad we're locked down here. Then most people probably say that about their home but I I suppose we are lucky in as much as we Have nearly all have guidance.
0: So, how's it been then? So, in terms of the shop, obviously, has been closed to, um, let's say, the people who normally populate your books, Sean. I've read your lovely piece that I would encourage everyone to read on the Wigtown Book Festival website. But just for those that haven't yet read it, there's a remarkable sort of admission from you in that piece.
1: I know. The, the first piece I submitted to Adrian wasn't quite so flattering. Uh, he asked me to rewrite it and make it more positive. But the, actually, <laughs> the first bit is genuinely true. I do miss my customers. And you know while it's lovely to be locked down with my family and be able to actually see people for a barbecue in the garden now. I think you do miss the strangers, the customers. Yeah, it's something I never thought I'd say. But apart from the fact that, you know, they, they give me something to write about, that kind of human interaction, meeting new people is, it's a surprisingly basic human need, I think. Well, certainly if for me. And admittedly, most of the time I'm rude about them, but I I still miss it.
0: You talk in the piece about a couple of standout, I guess, moments of connection. First of all, I'll ask you about Sandy. Is he Scotland's most tattooed man?
1: That's the claim he makes. I'm sure there are plenty of people who make the same claim, but he's certainly pretty extensively tattooed. It's only really his face, as far as I know. There are bits of his anatomy that I mercifully haven't seen. Um, (laughs) <laughs> as far as I'm aware, it's just his face that isn't tattooed. Every, every other inch of his body is. He and I have been corresponding because he, he's a total technophobe. So he, he doesn't have a mobile phone. He doesn't have a computer. All he has is a landline, which he never answers. And if you leave a message from a mobile number, he, he won't reply because it reckons it's too expensive to phone a mobile from a landline. So the only way we've been communicating is by letters, which has been great, because I'm a real letter writer anyway. Getting Sandy's letters has been great. Every one of them now contains a poem. There's one about Dominic Cummings, I think I might have read it online. But yeah, they're beautiful, and it, he goes out for walks every day, five miles a day he does. He lives by the sea, he's seen a white-tailed sea eagle, he's seen porpoises, Uh, I think he even saw, would have been probably a minke whale. For him, I think... It's, although he obviously misses human company because he's a very sociable guy, he's seen things that he probably wouldn't have seen, and he's he's very sort of connected to nature and the earth anyway. So not seeing vapor trails in the sky and all sorts of things has been, I think, he's really found it quite a positive experience.
0: Sean, you mentioned being a keen letter writer anyway, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. You know, in the piece, you you talk about such, some of the letters and other correspondences you've received, but the, it seems to me the bookshop. It has always been at the centre of receiving strange. messages is
1: Um, that fair it has and i can thank zoe bestell the local musician for that because she started it all by sending an anonymous postcard which i only obviously subsequently found out was from zoe and it's actually behind me in the shop i'll see if i can find it hang on yeah, it says a large portion of the Oxford English Dictionary was written by a murderer in a mental institution. And it just popped through the door one day. So I photographed it and put it on Facebook. And after that, an, a massive slew of anonymous postcards came from all over the world with strange literary facts. And that's sort of gone on and on and on. And since I've written the books, obviously get even more correspondence And it's all really interesting. And I write, if somebody emails me, I'll email them back. If somebody writes me, sends me a postcard, I'll send them a postcard back as long as there's an address. And if somebody writes me a letter, I'll write them a letter back. So actually having the time to properly get down to business and do all that without interruption from my customers who I miss desperately <clears throat> of course it's been really good fun it's been nice
0: I was just going to say you're keeping Mary busy do you? we had Mary on the podcast a couple of episodes ago in, yeah, the, in the, the post office, office. she's yeah. great Sean, I would want to talk to you about the next book, which Jenny Brown has tantalisingly mentioned also on a previous episode. But before we get there, I just want to ask you about the the first two, really, and about that sort of the journey to running the bookshop and then to being this kind of global sensation and taking Wigtown's Glory on the road. Can oh God, you,
1: can you st- the pudding a bit? Peggy, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I
0: don't. I don't think so. You're what you're in twenty two languages or so. It's huge, uh, I a huge it's number.
1: Seven now, actually. Just, the, twi-
0: just the casual. Just <laughs> the twenty seven. I mean, it's it's really remarkable. Can you just fill some people in there just a little bit more about how the books have come to be? I guess.
1: Yeah, sure. For me, it's been a really interesting process because other people who've worked in the shop with me have all said that strange encounters that you have with customers would make a great book, and it was all. Always in the back of my mind to write something. And I've got such a terrible memory. So I thought the best way to do it was to keep a diary. And then that would give me something as an aid memoir I could go back to at some point in the future. But then the diary format seemed to just work as it was. So when um, Jen Campbell's book, Weird Things Customers Say in Bookshops, came out, I think it was in 2012. I think most booksellers around the world probably stomped their feet and said oh, I was going to write that um, but Jen did it so you know fair play and um, so I had to do something a bit different so the diary seemed to work Jenny my agent when I sent her the first rough draft which was really pretty rough basically said yeah let's keep it as a diary format and just improve it <laughs> considerably <laughs> um, but yeah that, so that's how it came about and thankfully I suppose in a way I've been really lucky because of Wigton Book Festival that I know Jenny because I don't know she would maybe not have taken the Time to read it or found the time to read it. So, in that respect, I think I've been really fortunate. We rewrote it several times and then she took it to publishers and somebody went for it. Profile.
0: Where has the book taken you, Sean? And, and then in taking you there, it's sort of taken Wigtown. But where have you been and what's the reaction been like to this fab, weird little pocket of southwest Scotland?
1: That's been really interesting, actually. So, I've done a lot of the UK book festivals, oddly not hay and events in bookshops so I've been travelling around the country but uh, there's a, a broadcaster in New Zealand, a woman called Kim Hill who everybody listens to, she's like a, a sort of Eddie Mayer or somebody very funny, very gentle but at the same time doesn't pull any punches and she obviously read the book and enjoyed it Uh, and so I did an interview with her. Me in my naivety I had no idea who she was obviously because she's on the other side of the world but everybody tunes into the Kim Hill show so suddenly I got invited to New Zealand and had I think about 10 events from Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin and Featherston, which is New Zealand's book town. I, I was absolutely gobsmacked it was you know I was Obviously, because of Tim Hill, my book did really well in New Zealand. So that was really interesting. And annoyingly, this year, I was invited to do events in New York, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Lviv. Apparently, it's pronounced Lvov in Ukraine. All cancelled.
0: What a shame. I know. Yeah. I mean have you done much in terms of appearing at things digitally or or on this podcast of course? Yeah I've done
1: quite a few things online with actually with my Ukrainian publisher and a book club in Spain and I've done something every two or three days I would say but it's just not the same as being there I remember when I was really nervous before my very first event which was here in Wigtown I had to have Jessica there on the um, table as well because I was just so scared I'd completely dry up and remember jessica saying just wait till you get your first laugh and then you'll be addicted to this and she's right you know <laughs> where you yeah. kind of think oh my god why is everybody laughing but um that's the most yeah. satisfying thing i think about doing live events and you don't get that feedback from doing recorded things
0: I mean I I did want to ask you are you happy enough to tell us a bit about the third book seven customers you might stand to meet in in a bookshop like yours do you want to say a little bit more yeah um, I've,
1: (laughs) I've just I've got a tiny bit more to do on it but it's being copy edited at the moment so it's seven types of people you find in bookshops or seven kinds I can't remember whether it's types or kinds I think after this I doubt anybody's going to step over the threshold of the bookshop because it's so <laughs> offensive i remember reading it i sent the first draft off to cecily my editor uh, and she sent it back with her editorial notes and i was reading it and thought oh my god did i really write that so it's horrible sweeping generalizations that are deeply offensive um and i just feel i don't know i think the, Everybody seems okay with this. My publisher seems quite happy with it, but uh yeah i did I did read bits of it back, and obviously you you really blow everything out of proportion for comic effect, but um yeah, I did worry that I came over as just being utterly utterly compassionless and miserable.
0: <laughs> it does seem to me though sean that the the more biting or the more sort of curmudgeonly booksellery, the more lo- lovable it is Do in, in you know what I mean it's sort of like a, an inverse. Um, equation in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of the tourism for the the shop. A lot of it's predicated on this idea of visiting, the kind of grumpy bookseller, would you say? Yes, um,
1: absolutely. I mean, it is really interesting because so Nick and Andrew, who have a bookshop in Wigtown, Nick's from New Zealand, so they go over to visit family and things every year. Nick very kindly said that I'd sort of more or less put Wigtown on the map in New Zealand and everybody knows about it, which is really unnecessarily generous of him. But um, we have had a lot of customers who've come to the shop because they've read the book and from all over the world. And a lot of them, when they come to pay, you know, they don't announce themselves. Some of them do, I suppose, but most of them don't announce themselves as being there there because they've read the book. But um, inevitably, when they come to pay, they do say, yeah, we're not going to say anything we're not we're just going to pay and leave because we don't we don't want you to be ridiculing us in your next books. <laughs> <laughs> I think secretly quite a few people do want to be in the next book. So, um yeah, and I keep the diary going every day as well. So, even during lockdown when there's not much going on, I do keep going every day. So, I've got another potentially four years I think of diary on the hard drive. It's just whether or not my publisher wants to publish it. I think they've wanted a break, which is why they've Asked for the seven kinds of people you find in bookshops just as something different. No, it's quite testing because the diary, I, I mean, I, I quote Sue Townsend whenever I can because I. I've been rereading and reading for the first time some of the Adrian Mole books. They are absolutely brilliant. And Sue Townsend said, somebody asked her in, in an interview, why do you choose the diary format? And she replied, um, well, it's really easy. You just write each day at a time. And suddenly you've got a week. Then after a few weeks, you've got a month. Then after a few months, you've got a year. It just lends it. It's, it's a really easy format to write in, which is it's, it obviously suited her, the diary format for Adrian Mole, And it, it kind of suits the way I write too. And people
0: love reading diaries. Come on, I mean diaries are.
1: This is are just, just a so... snooping insight into someone snooping.
0: else's life. it's voyeuristic. It voyeuristic. <laughs> We're all just prurient voyeurs, yeah. probably. <laughs> um, I, I did want to. Um, I suppose just kind of bring us to a, 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 the towards the, a close, really, just by asking a little bit more about the bookshop itself during lockdown. I know you've a lot of you, you Wigton booksellers have been doing sterling work online. Has that been the case for you? Have people been? Have you been busy in that online space?
1: Uh, not in bookselling terms, no. Um, unfortunately, I made the decision about a year ago. To stop selling online because the only way to actually do it profitably, or not even profitably to do it at all, was through big corporations who I don't particularly like. And they're cutting and eating up so much of the profit that it was barely financially worthwhile. So I just closed all my accounts and have no online presence at all. So unfortunately, this coincided with the COVID outbreak and lockdown. So I suppose if I had kept those markets open, I would have been better off. Um, But I don't know, I mean, I'm selling copies of my own book, and the grants have been incredibly useful. I don't know what I'd have done without those. Mm. So hopefully, we'll be able to reopen soon. But the problem, I think, for all of us in Wigtown is we are very, very tourist dependent. And even if we're allowed to open, if there are still restrictions on movement, we're not going to see any tourists. So it's almost not worth worthwhile opening again but we'll see
0: yeah yeah we we will see i mean um i, I was just thinking if how this i've heard some bookshops doing kind of um private you can book a private tour or you can have a one-to-one and i thought i thought with the bookshop and you that kind of i would pay big bucks to just have a a kind of grump grump off with sean <laughs> okay, yeah, not, you know just, that, that's i'm just putting it out there as a as a potential well as a thing.
1: I, have, I have the well the problem again with that is movement you know you're discouraged from going more than five miles from home and you know we're not really going to get certainly not going to get any international tourism and probably very little even scottish visitors
0: praise the internet that we've been able to connect here and that the facebook japes such as your literary what's your literary trivia uh
1: live at five funny i used to when i first started doing it i'd get really anxious and um you know, half an hour beforehand, I'd be picking the questions and thinking of interesting things to say. i just become so cavalier about it. And I, sort of 30 seconds before I go live, I thought, crikey, right, I'd better find some questions. Um,
0: <laughs> but it, it continues. So so more of this, up with this sort of thing, really.
1: <laughs> Thank um, you,
0: and when, when's the, um, do you have any, any dates for the book?
1: I think certainly the US edition is going to be in November. So my American publisher of the second book has also bought the rights to the third book. Um, so I think it's probably going to be, the UK edition will probably be roundabout then as well. So in time, hopefully for Christmas.
0: That's definitely something to look forward to. Thank you so much to Sean for having a chat with us. Next up is Renita Boyle, who is the storyteller in residence for the Wigtown Book Festival. And Renita generally is just the most cheering person and I know has been cheering everyone up throughout this lockdown period in Wigtown with her singing and her stories. Uh, So it was lovely to hear more about some of the projects that she's been working on. What's the view for you from this weird lockdown
2: time? Oh my goodness. Well, it is very surreal, isn't it? (laughs) It also has shown just what a strong community we are, how resilient we are. We've managed to get a bunch of very elderly people online. We sing, I doorstop sing around the town to the families.
0: Tell me more about this doorstep singing. I would like Aronita Boyle to appear on my doorstep and <laughs> sing.
2: What's that like? It became very clear very soon on that. That one of the things that people really miss about gathering together, like in churches, is the ability to sing together and also just having contact with each other. So I started to find out when birthdays were amongst the messy church families and elderly people, and I'll just, you know, rock up on their doorstep and sing a happy birthday song to them or you are my sunshine or something that they appreciate. And it's just a lovely point of contact. Music really brings people together, I think. I've seen there's a there's a
0: huge rise in popularity for um, choirs over Zoom and things. I think that's absolutely remarkable. And also just the dedication it takes to learn a song when you're apart. Like it's such a, a certain kind of communication it takes to do that, I think. So you've got two, not one, but two beautiful initiatives for the Wigtown Book Festival. I'm going to ask you first of all about Funky Folk and Fable. What happens at Funky Folk and Fable?
2: It's just maybe... Five-minute, seven-minute story, and it's a folk tale or a fable that is ramped up with rhythm and rhyme and usually has a silly song embedded in it. So they're quite good for crowd-pleasing. They're great for kids to participate in. I put it up on Fridays. Funky Folk and Fables are on Fridays at 5 on my YouTube channel, Tell Together Tales and also on the Big Dog Facebook page, courtesy of Wigtown Festival Company.
0: Tell me, what's different for you as a storyteller? It's quite a different storytelling with a
2: screen. So it's been very interesting, storytellers bringing their, what is essentially a personal, relational skill and stories online. But I think... In some ways, storytellers are natural performers. It's just a different way of communicating, I think. I miss the being able to eyeball the people that I'm telling stories with. But I also recognize that there are lots of people who are accessing those stories that wouldn't normally ever get to access me in real life. And so it's a real opportunity to do that. And then schools will be able to plug into those stories. I'm the patron of reading at a school in um, Renfrew and their kids you know schools are really in a lot of chaos right now so to be able to have something up for them, to have somebody that they recognize from their daily life, but maybe won't be able to see for a long time, brings them comfort, but also helps them to access great stories. So I do enjoy the process of putting it online. What a nice notion that is that through all this, if
0: if if what the one good thing that coronavirus has given the world is the fact of Renita Boyle <laughs> traveling to places, <laughs> traveling to living rooms and kitchens <laughs> that she could have, couldn't have got to before then and that's a really really cheering idea. And what then of Tuck-in Tales, which is I think not launching until next month?
2: Okay, so Tuck-in Tales I actually did for the Big Dog Festival, the version digital version of the festival run by the festival company this year. Every night of that festival I did a tuck-in tale around a wild animal, fox and otter and bear and so there was one every night for 10 nights and they were for families and they were between 10 and 15 minutes long and they essentially they involved a welcome song, a story, a lullaby and a poem and musical instruments so they were very quiet in nature i did those live on facebook on the big dog page and while that was really fun i thought i would really like to redo these and add more to them in a pre-recorded way so that i could really developed that because they went down very well. People enjoyed them and they could watch them anytime. And also because I have an American audience as well. You know, I kind of put it on at the time of night when people in America, their kids might be having a nap. So you can tuck in at night or tuck in at nap time. And actually, quite a lot of elderly people tuck in at nap time too, I have found. it
0: really, really. So it's a, mul- a multi generational yes. uh, story time experience. How absolutely lovely. And you've just touched on that there that you have a big following in America. And that, of course, to the eagle ear is not a Wigtonshire accent. Just maybe tell us a little bit about how storytelling found you as a little girl on a farm in Wisconsin.
2: Yes. So I grew up, yep, I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin. So I divided my time in childhood between a farm and a little cabin in the north woods, basically. My great grandfather was a lumberjack. He learned lots of folktales, particularly Paul Bunyan stories from his time as a lumberjack. And when he retired, he didn't tell those stories to his kids or his grandkids. But when he retired, he had a slew of great grandchildren amongst whom I was one and he would tell me those stories. So I learned my love of folk stories and fables from my great grandfather. You know, how you used to have in schools, you would bring something to show and tell. I would always bring my grandfather and then he would tell. And I think in rural areas, probably still, people are natural born storytellers, and they do pass on their life stories and their skill stories and the fables and the traditional stories. So I grew up in that kind of environment, and I also grew up in a church that really valued the participation of everyone. So if you went to my church, it didn't matter how small you were, you were involved. So I was telling Bible stories in front of hundreds of people by the time I was eight. So I credit both of those kinds of experiences as key to my development as a storyteller.
0: Goodness, that's very young to begin sort of having a big audience at the age of eight. I guess coming from a family of storytellers or a a great grandfather storyteller, that was perhaps came quite naturally, quite early for you.
2: Yes, I think it is quite natural. And I think it's really interesting because I do a lot of training, tail twisters, I call it, in schools. Kids around about, up to the, you know, around about the ages of eight are absolutely natural storytellers. I very seldom do I find kids in that age group nervous about standing up and telling a story. And it's absolutely wonderful to watch them go from mimicking you as a storyteller to developing their own style and choosing their own stories to tell and how eager they are to do it. So I think maybe we all are natural storytellers and we grow out of it rather than we have to grow into it.
0: Can you give us a little taster of how you go about training people and teaching people to tell stories? What will be the top, the top menu of things that you would want to impart to the listeners of the Wigtown Book Festival podcast?
2: So one of the things I say is a story finds you. You can find great stories, but sometimes there will be a story that finds you and it'll grab you and you will want to tell it because it resonates with you in some way storytelling, although there's performance aspect in storytelling, storytelling is actually a relationship that you develop with an audience because it is at the heart of who we are. It is actually the oldest art form. I get quite frustrated sometimes when we think of literacy as reading and writing. Actually, storytelling is pre-literacy because it is through communication with somebody else, with the the stories at bedtime, with the telling of family stories, that's how it's a human. It is a deeply human thing to tell stories to one another. and it's those skills that take us into literacies. In many ways, if you aren't able to learn how to communicate, then it's going to be difficult to learn how to read and how to write. So storytelling, is foundational to those later skills, I believe. So when we tell stories in school, I try to do that initially without a book so that they can learn the skills of just standing up in a small group, developing those key skills in how to have eye contact, how to be a good listener, how to speak clearly, how to engage an audience, how to deal with somebody who's fidgeting. They're all really great people skills.
0: I suspect there's quite a lot of fun to be had oh, yes. in combining, well, generally, just generally, um, but also in combining the American fable and the Scottish ones that there's probably quite a rich mix in there in your sort of story hoard. Do you have any, any favourite Scottish folk stories or, or
2: fables? I really love the volumes of stories of Teresa Breslin's collection because they're very beautifully illustrated and they're very wonderfully told. There's a version of most folktales of the similar kind in every culture. There's a common thread between all of these. So I really like that. And what I've been trying to do, both in the book festival and where I'm a patron of reading, is to create stories that are easy to perform, easy to... Because to, sometimes you find that kids will not engage with a book that has a lot of text while I want them to get to the place where they're really engaging with all these wonderful stories that have been written in beauty. Some some kids are working in a second language or they don't have interest. So what I've tried to do is bring them out of that, make them very simple, give them sentences to say, some rhythm, some rhyme in them. And then I'm also doing them in Scots. And what's interesting in working in the Scots, because I'm not a natural Scots speaker, as you can tell. And um, it's a terrible Wisconsin-Scot accent, so I won't inflict it upon you. But what's wonderful in the schools is that a lot of Scots children don't feel comfortable actually using their own language. And so... I've often thought, well, it's a real negative that I have such a strong American accent, even though I really love Scots. But actually, in the school where I'm working, it's a real positive because I can say, look, if I can do this, I've lived in Scotland now for 35 years. And if I can love your language, you can love it and use it too. And that's been wonderful. So I, I did the story of the Mitten, which is actually a, a Russian folktale. And I did it in Scots as well. The kids had the chance to do it either in English or in Scots. And one little group of girls decided to do it in Scots. And then they performed it all over the school. And it was so wonderful. And the pride in their faces that they had, for the first time ever, done a story in their own language was quite amazing. Of course,
0: you say, you know, you're new to Scots and everything, but I happen to know that your beautiful little poem won the Scots category of the Wigtown Poetry Competition 2016, 2017, something like that. that. That must have, for you, have been quite a special thing.
2: Actually, it was very emotional for me because I've lived here a long time. I know it sounds strange, but I actually think quite a lot in Scots because I'm surrounded by it all the time. I'm married to a Glaswegian. I always thought, well, if I'm not Scots, maybe I shouldn't even endeavor. But I have a lot of Scots speaking friends who are really encourage people to embrace Scots. That poem came out of Rab Wilson actually, insisting that I send all my emails to him in Scots and you know, all sorts of things. And so I had a, I had a go at a small Scots poem. And when it won, I actually cried because I think it really affirmed the dual nature of my life. I am Scots in many ways. I am a, I'm a resident here, but I am also a citizen here. I've lived here longer than I've lived in America. And it affirmed that part of my experience that, yes, you know, I belong here. This is my people too. This, you know, I have a vested interest here. And so I actually wrote it in both in both my tongues, in English and in Scots. And the process of doing it in both was fascinating because like the, the poem actually ends on, and let it, in Scots, Scots it's, it ends on, and let it greet, which is not the same as, and let it weep. You know, and I love Scots because it's such a, I I find it's a great language for lament and contempt. You know, it's a very passionate language and some of the words just, you feel them in your heart and in your spirit like you would if you were listening to a Celtic instrument like the pipes or the, there's just something about it that goes all the way through you, the language and the music of this country. Thank you
0: so much to Renita. Renita's two events are Funky Folk and Fable Fridays. That's at 5pm on Fridays. You can jig with the pigs and meet the silliest man in the world. And the new programme, which starts on the 12th of July, which is a Thursday, is at 7pm every Thursday and that's Tuck In Tales stories, songs and lullabies for those with sleepy eyes what could be nicer than that I think I might tune in myself to be honest (laughs) I hope I'm not too old so thank you so much to Sean Bithell and to Renita Boyle for chatting to us thank you so much to you though for tuning in wherever you are in the world whether that's Wigtown or somewhere a little bit further afield it's been lovely to be with you this week and we will look forward to joining you again next week in the meanwhile take good care Bye-bye.